me to Psalm 95 as we uh, get into God's word this morning. You have an outline in the worship folder, so I invite you to take that as well so you can follow along. So if you were asked by a friend to describe God's greatness, what would you say? How would you describe God's greatness? Um, When you say, man, that was great worship, which I think I say every Sunday, what do you mean? Was it like a Christian concert that you were observing? Um, Did you like the tunes? Did you like the words that were sung? Or did you really enter into worship and focus on God? This psalm is about worship. And on your outline, you have a definition that worship is valuing God above all things in a way that involves our heart, mind, and actions. Worship is honoring and praising the greatness of God. It's taking the focus off of ourselves and putting it on God. Jesus said in Matthew 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. So Jesus is saying true worship begins in the heart, and, and we understand God's value above all else, and that begins in our hearts. Worship is more than just in the heart, but it is definitely not less than that. Worship also includes grasping who God is with our minds. If we're worshiping our own idea of God, we're not worshiping God. We need to understand who God is from his word and that we're truly worshiping the God the Bible describes. I guess we could say that the mind, what the mind rightly understands, as our mind rightly understands that, our heart rightly treasures God. The English word worship comes from the idea of showing the worth of God, the worth-ship. Lived out, Hebrews 13 says this, Hebrews 13 uh, says, through him then, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then look at what flows out of that. In the very next verse, it says, This is what it leads to. Do do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other words, worship is something that engages our minds and our emotions and our will and our our entire self. And it's the way we respond to God, but then there's there's an impact too on, on, on how we treat other people. And this is important to understand because you can know a lot of doctrine, you can know a lot of rituals, you can know a lot about God and never have the experience of a changed life and and not worship. And so the same is true from the other side. You can experience all kinds of emotion around worship, but if there's not a change in your character and the way you live, then it's not really worship. So look at the quote on the outline from Dr. J.I. Packer. It's a a great quote. 
it's kind of long, but follow me here. To worship God is to recognize his worth or worthiness, to look Godward, to acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. The Bible calls this activity glorifying God or giving glory to God and views it as the ultimate end and from one point of view, the whole duty of man. Scripture views glorifying God, worship if you will, as a six-fold activity. Praising God for all that he is and all of his achievements, thanking him for his gifts and his goodness to us, asking him to meet our own and others' needs, offering him our gifts and our service and ourselves, learning of him from his word, read and read and preached and obeying his voice, telling others of his worth, both by public confession and testimony to what he has done for us. So, thus we might say that the formula, uh, that the basic formulas of worship are these. So these correspond to the six things I just read. Lord, you are wonderful corresponds with praising God for all that he is and all of his achievements. Thank you, Lord, uh, belongs to thanking him for his gifts and his goodness to us. Please, Lord, is asking him to meet our own needs and others' needs. Take this, Lord, is offering him our gifts and our service and ourselves. Yes, Lord, is learning of him from his word read and preached and obeying his voice. And listen, everybody, is telling others of his worth, both by public confession and testimony to what he has done for us. This, then, is worship in its largest sense, petitions as well as praise, preaching as well as prayer, hearing as well as speaking, actions as well as words, obeying as well as offering, loving people, as well as loving God. However, the primary acts of worship are those which focus on God directly, and we must not imagine that the work of God in the world is a substitute for direct fellowship with him in praise and prayer and devotion. That's one to think about. Well, you can look, read that again later and and think about that some more. Let's read our psalm together. Follow along in your Bibles as I read Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Mirabah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. This is God's word. So the first seven verses were twice uh, called to worship 
And we're given a couple of reasons. We're going to look at those. And then the last half, we listen to God's voice as he calls us to obedience in following him. So the first thing is a call to worship. That's number one on your outline. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. So in these first two verses, the author, who is anonymous, we don't know who this author is, exhorts God's people, and it's plural. It's, to, uh, it's a corporate worship. Let us worship together. So we join others in worshiping God, and we do it loudly, it says. Let's worship aloud. Uh, we engage our minds, but we also engage our emotions um, maybe you think, well, I'm kind of shy. I don't like to show my emotions in church. Well, uh, I, I bet you show your emotions if you were to go to a Padres game or if you were to go to a, and they hit a home run or something, or you go to a Chargers. We show our emotion. So why not show our emotion to God and let him know that, that we love him and sing loudly? We make a joyful noise. I, I, I'm not the best at singing, but I love to sing loudly and make a joyful noise to the Lord. Sometimes worship is about singing our hearts out for the Lord. And sometimes you can't contain the joy. You know that there are over 400, more than 400 references to, in the Bible to singing, and 50 of them at least come across as commands to sing. Singing is an important form of praise. Um, Martin Luther, who wrote A Mighty Fortress is Our God, put that to a bar tune so that people could remember it. And what he wrote was really a summary of theology. And he said, if somebody asks to the illiterate people he was, he was ministering to, if somebody asks you what you believe, sing this song to them. A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And so Luther was the one who said, as long as we are alive, there is never enough singing. Uh, one of my professors, in fact, J.I. Packer, who we read the quote from, used to say, Christianity is a singing religion. It's what we do. We express our joy to the Lord. And this singing is directed in verse 1 to the rock of our salvation. One commentator points out that the word rock is, is a high rock that's difficult to access. And so it's a very secure place of refuge for us. And that, the idea is that God is so high, no evil power can reach him. He is our refuge. He will keep us safe in him. And so we run to him and, and we run to our rock and we find our, we hide in the rock. And so to come before him in verse two is literally to come before his face. We have a, an intimate personal relationship with God. And, and it, there's a very specific reason for joining the praise in verses three to five. And the, 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 the reason, first of all, is because he is the creator of all things. You have that on your outline. Verses three to six, because he is the creator of all things. Our covenant God, in verse one, is the Lord, the great God, the king above all gods. In other words, we should worship and we should not worry because God is in control. Worry can be a barometer that tells us that we're trying to take control of what, and not relax in God who is in control. And others may call themselves great, but it is only the covenant God of the Bible who is above all of these. 
And verse four spells out his kingship by talking about two extremes. In his hand are the depths of the earth, literally the remote parts, and the mountain peaks, the heights, they belong to him, everything in between. In other words, from the very lowest part of God's creation to the highest, it's all his. Nothing in God's created order is outside of his authority. And then in verse five, there's the sea and the dry land. And again, they're not outside the realm of God's power. And so the psalmist exhorts us to join in a loud celebration of the one true God who is unrivaled in all things. Look at verse six. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. So we don't have to bow down to pray, but there's something about getting on our knees when uh, that the posture of prayer that's I, I think is important. Some of you might be thinking, well, if I get down on my knees, I may never get up. Um, but uh, the posture says, I surrender. Who am I to you, the king, before you? You're the great king. You are the almighty God. You are, are, are the one that I can bow down before. And for the psalmist, all of this worship and life change is happening because he's going over in his mind how incredible God is. He's listing the, these things about God. He's thinking about him. He's reflecting on him until there's this explosion of joy and singing in his life. You know, I, I was trying to think how to convey how great God is. And I I ran across this and I thought this was pretty good and appropriate because there are some people that have walked into this sanctuary and said, this looks like a spaceship. So I thought we could maybe travel through space a little bit together. And do you know that there are over 200 million stars in our galaxy? And over 200 million other galaxies also with that many stars? And so today, as, as we take off here um, and travel across our galaxy, and we're gonna go at a speed so fast that it doesn't even feel like we're moving. At 186,000 miles per second, which is just slightly faster than I know some of you drive. So anyway, you wanna know how fast that really is? The way, how fast that is, if you shoot a bullet at that speed, it would circle the earth seven times in one second. That's how fast that is. That's how fast we're going. 669 million miles an hour. So in 10 seconds, which means we've already passed the moon, which was only 230,000 miles away, and we've got about eight and a half more minutes, and eight and a half more minutes we'll pass the sun that's only 93 million miles away. So one year passes, five years pass, 10 years pass, 100 years pass, A thousand years pass, traveling at that speed. 15,000 years pass at 669 million miles an hour, and we have not yet made it to halfway through our galaxy. That's how big God is. That's how big our God is. And if you have another 100,000 years, we could get into the next galaxy. What I'm saying is that if God is so great and that he put this world and this universe together and Colossians 1 says he holds it together by his power, whatever it is you might bring to God, 
what is it to him? You bring your greatest request, Lord, I'm dying of cancer. Or you bring the most menial of all requests, Lord, I need a parking spot. What are those to him, whether it's a parking spot or cancer? It's the same name, it's nothing to him. And so you can bring those things to God, and and if you're worried about something going on in your life, it's a barometer that you're not trusting God. He wants you to relax in him and trust him completely. And I'm not saying this to minimize our problems. Our problems are real, they're they're painful, they hurt, they're no fun. But the reason we need to focus on the greatness of God is to remind ourselves that we are not alone. He is with us. He will never leave you or forsake you, no matter what your problem is. Think about what you're going through in your life. It's nothing for God. Do you know that God is with you in what you're going through right now? We have a resource to help us through the the issues, whatever those issues are that we face. He doesn't leave us with our own toolbox. He invades us with his presence. And so the next thing you have on the outline, we may be out of control, but God is in control. In verse six, we're called to come in to God's presence and bow down. I think it's interesting that these words, bow down and worship and kneel, are all downward movements. And again, on your outline, we worship God with our mind and our emotions, but also we worship him with our will. We can will and decide to worship him. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We're not talking about a curtsy in front of British royalty or something. We are talking about bowing down before God. In, in, in the biography of A.W. Tozer, written by Lyle Dorsett, he talks about um, <clears throat> a time when he was pastor, A.W. Tozer was pastor of Moody Church and, uh, in Chicago, and his secretary needed to, to talk to him, and, and so she knocked on the door, and there was no response, and she knocked a little louder, no response. She finally went in, and he was laying down on the ground, and he had his Bible open, and he's praying. And he was so enraptured that he didn't, he said, even hear the, the door knock. And, and he said, I can't get any lower than this. Kneeling wasn't low enough before God. So I had to be down on my face in front of him with his word and listening to his word and praying. And this is a call, this psalm is a call to humility, to humble ourselves before God, to confess our sin, knowing that he's faithful and righteous and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can speak to his face and if we can get on our knees physically, we, we, great, we do it. But if we can't, we need to say, Lord, I'm on my knees in my heart. I, I want to have that humility before you. Do you understand how much we have in Jesus Christ? Do you understand how much he loves you? If you understand that, you'll look at the things you're dealing with, whatever it is, and you'll say, it's, it's no big deal to God. This is the God we serve. 
And that kind of shared jubilant singing that we, we, we did together, we did together this morning. The, this psalm says it, it should move our hearts and our bodies and our lives into a willing submission, a, a humility before God, the God we praise. And the second reason we're given in Psalm 95, look at verse seven. He is our maker, he is my maker. He is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. God did this in the exodus from Egypt for the people and he called out a people for himself to live in covenant relationship with him. It, in Hebrew, it's the word hased. It's three consonants long and it's, it, it, it just means covenant love. There's nothing that can break God's covenant love with you. He's the maker of Israel, but he's also your shepherd. Personally, he's your shepherd. That was Jesus' favorite way that he looked at the body of Christ as a flock and, and him as being our shepherd. And just as God meticulously put together creation, he specifically designed you. You are the only you in the universe. And God made you just the way he made you because he loves you. And again, I'm, I'm not a physician. I don't know all of these, or a biologist. I don't know all these facts, but I think these were pretty cool. Did you know, I, I didn't know this, that you have more than 107 million cells in each of your eyeballs that allow you to see? You have about 60,000 miles of arteries and blood vessels through in your body. There are more than 9,000 taste buds on your tongue. When it was plural, I thought there were maybe two or three. I didn't know there were 9,000 taste buds. I did know that there were 220 bones in our bodies, but 600 muscles that cover those bones. And God made you just the way he wanted to make you. You are a special creation of God. God never leaves his creations in the lurch. He always takes care of his creation. In verse seven, the psalmist says there are two ways that God takes care of us. First of all, he calls us the sheep, the people of his pasture. And the pasture is all about provision. In other words, God provides for his people. The apostle Paul writes and says, you can be sure that God will take care of everything you need with his generosity exceeding even yours in the glory that pours from Jesus. And then second, we're the flock under his care. In other words, God protects us and guides us. When we need protection, God will shield us. When we need guidance, he directs us. Some people will come up to me and they'll say, how do I know what God's will is for my life? Well, it's revealed in his word and know that God wants you to know his will more than you want to know his will. He will tell you his will. And again, you, you delight yourself in God and his word and, and he will direct your path. He promises that. When we're in over our heads, he will pull us out. We do not, this is on your outline, we do not need to be intimidated when problems come our way. In fact, when problems come our way, our response should be to say, God, you've got a problem. Whatever this problem is in my life, it's, it's the two of us that are gonna handle this. These two realities should be in the forefront of our mind. He's the creator of all things, and he is the shepherd, he is my shepherd. And the result of this should be a sense of joy. 
And that's the worship that, we've, that we're talking about. It should be a deep reverence. And ideally, they're part of authentic worship, both of these. And so, on your outline again, worship is understanding that God has ultimate value and then living in such a way that that truth transforms our entire life. It should, worship should always lead to life change. And, and what, the, what, what is the life change that it should be? It should make us more like Jesus. That's the prayer, and that's what Paul says in Romans 8, 29. That we were, that God created us so that we would eventually be more and more like Jesus. And so he says in verse seven today, uh, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Mirabah, as you did at the day at Massah in the wilderness. So number two, we're to, together, we're, we're to obey today the word of God. That's what we're to do. And the point of using the word today is because it's urgent. We should listen today. We don't have tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised to any of us, but we do have right now. We have this moment in time. It's because it's urgent to listen. No matter how many times we've heard it in the past, and no matter how many times we hear it in the future, it's now that matters. And so there's an urgency that we should have. There's, we can't procrastinate to, to preach the gospel to the whole world. That's the motivation for sending our missionaries out. That should be our motivation for talking to our neighbor or our coworker or a fellow student or the people that God brings across our path every day of the good news of Jesus. We should sense an urgency about that. You know, I was talking about Moody Church earlier, and R.A. Torrey was one of the pastors. And another pastor of Moody Church, um, uh, well, the same R.A. Torrey wrote a book about how to win men to Christ. And in this book, R.A. Torrey talks about a time when he was walking, uh, I think there was a service over at church, he was walking home, he walked past a bar, and he thought, man, I, he, he got one of those prompts, you ever get one of those prompts, you know, the Lord just is prompting you to go talk to someone or, or uh, speak to someone or do something? And sometimes people will ask me, how do I know if the prompt is from God? If it's not illegal and it's not against scripture, follow the prompt. Do what God says to do. So God told, gave R.A. Torrey this nudge to go in and talk to the bartender at this bar. And he was like, I can't go in the bar, I'm a pastor. What if one of my parishioners sees me walk in this bar? What if I walk in the bar and see one of my parishioners? That would be bad too. So he just said, I'm gonna stay outside. I'm gonna wait and talk to the bartender when he comes out. So he waits for an hour and it's getting very late and he waits another hour and he gets late. And the bar is kind of getting ready to close and a police car drives up and then an ambulance Ambulance. And, and he walks up and says, what's the problem? He goes, oh, somebody in there committed suicide. And he asks a little bit more and he finds out the bartender committed suicide. And he said, never again will I delay in following a prompt. I'm gonna do it when God gives me the prompt. God, the God of who created this universe, who created you and who's your shepherd can prompt you at exactly the right time. Don't say to God, I'll do it tomorrow. Don't say to God, I'll do it in an hour. Do it now. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So, you know what? We're, we're all flawed. 
But we all need to have this sense of urgency, and I I hope that's always the case for us, especially as we enter this holiday season. We we all, I I hope every one of you has a list of of 10 people that you're praying for that are in your life that you can invite to come to some of our Christmas activities, that that you can pray for open doors for yourself to be able to talk to these people about the Lord. We're all flawed. The task is so much bigger than us, but we all need to sense this urgency. And that that means that I need to start in my life. I need to feel an urgency in the way that I live my life in my closeness with God. The way I read and what I feed into my mind, I need to have an urgency about putting the right things in there so that then there will be a richness in my life that I can speak out of into the lives of other people. So in verses one and two, we're called to shout joyfully to the Lord. And now we're called to close our mouths and open our ears. Verse seven, today if you hear his voice, if we're talking, we can't listen. So we need to be listening to God. And the word hear is interesting because in Hebrew, it's almost always coupled with the word obey. Obey. In verse eight, do not harden your hearts. God is saddened when, when he tries to speak to us and we don't listen. When we can, you know, we can choose to trust him or we can choose to worry. And let worry be a barometer in your life that if, it's, it's, it's getting, if you're starting to worry that you're not trusting God in some area. And so you've got this on your outline. God is saddened by our worry. It grieves him when we worry because we're not trusting him. And this is a warning to think back on these two locations, Meribah and Massa, which means strife and testing and what happened in both of those places. What happened is that God's people hardened their hearts and resisted God. You've got it on your outline. They resisted God's word. They may have gone through the outward motions of of corporate worship. Maybe they were even singing with enthusiasm. But in both instances, their hearts were far from God. So we need to examine our hearts. Are our hearts far from God? Are we going through all the right motions? But where's our heart at? Isaiah 29 says, and and, and so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. God's people claimed to be close to him, but they were disobedient. They were just going through the motions. And the religion had become routine. It ceased to be real for them. And we are all capable of slipping away. We're all capable of getting into routine patterns and neglecting to really focus on God. To just sing the words and not think about what they're about. Remember the church at Sardis in Revelation 3? Jesus said to them, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And then he says, wake up. Wake up. He doesn't, he said they're not completely gone, but to wake up. And verse 9 tells us how in those places God tested him. Look at verse 9. Your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. 
Even though they'd seen God's faithfulness, even though God had rescued them out of Egypt, even though he had taken them through the, the, the Red Sea so that it was like they were crossing on dry land, even though he, they gave him the provision of manna in the desert. Do you know what manna means? Manna is Hebrew for, what is it? <laughs> I love that. What is it? What is it? I have manna everywhere. And look at what God says in verse 10. They are a people whose heart go astray, whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So the book of Hebrews makes a big deal. Quotes Psalm 95 verse 11 in Hebrews. Psalm 95 verse 11. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So out of an entire generation of people that God brought out of Egypt, how many made it into the promised land? Two guys, Joshua and Caleb. We're the only ones. And this is where the psalm ends. The psalm began so positively. Why does it end on this note? You know, Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 verse 11. And it's a warning to God's new covenant people. That's you. That's me. We are God's new covenant people. And Psalm 4 puts it like this, that the physical rest of the children of God in the Old Testament points us to a deeper spiritual rest. And he says this in Hebrews 4, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And then Hebrews says, we who have believed enter that rest. For anyone who enters God's rest, rests from his own work just as God did from his. And so the writer to the Hebrews is not talking about going home on Sunday and taking a sanctified nap. Today we enter God's rest when we believe in Christ's finished work on the cross. That's how we enter God's rest. We believe in Jesus. We live our lives for him. We who have believed enter that rest. And when Christ returns and we're in his presence, that's the, that's the complete fulfillment of God's rest. And now as we hear this psalm, we hear the voice of Jesus encouraging and warning us at the same time that it's not about just singing songs of praise. True worship is also humble prayer. It's, it's an eager attentiveness to God's word. It's, it's obedience to God from the heart. It's not just about the first half of this psalm. It's about the last half of this psalm as well. We aren't offered a physical promised land. We are offered ultimate rest from the crushing burden of trying to save ourselves on the basis of how we perform. Religion says, I will live a good life. If I live a good life, God will bless me. But Christianity says the opposite. God gives us in Jesus a perfect record that we receive by faith, by grace through faith. It's exactly the opposite. So you have this on the outline. The ultimate rest is to believe in the gospel. Believe the gospel. And what that means is that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know that everything is gonna come out perfectly for God to bless you. Why would this be at the end of a psalm of worship? Because if you don't understand gospel rest, then you're going to say, you know, if I come to worship, if I do it right, if I pray well, if I never miss church, if I sing and think about the words, and I've checked all these boxes, maybe God, will, maybe I can go to heaven then. 
And it's important to believe on Jesus Christ now while it is still called today. And the psalm says, today if you hear his voice. Hebrews repeats this five times. You've got the references. So Jesus invites you to respond to him today. It's not just because, understanding that worship is just one more work. That's what God wants us to avoid saying in this psalm. That worship is just one more work that we can do. That's not what God wants us to turn that into. And so the point of today is that the gospel invitation is for today. It's not, it doesn't last forever. We, we don't know about tomorrow. Now is the time to turn from a sin that you're holding on to. We all do that. What are you holding on to? You give that to God. You give that, you lay that before God and say, God, you need to help me with this issue right now, this sin in my life. You let it go. Now is the time to believe and follow Jesus. If you've never had the opportunity, if you've never received Christ, the Bible says, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. It's a free gift. You just have to receive it. And if you receive it, you have eternal life. That's the promise of God's word. Have you? Have you received Christ? If you've never received Christ, by all means, take advantage of this moment now. We're gonna have some people up front who will talk with you and pray with you and listen to where you're at. They will lead you to Christ if you don't know him. Now is the time to believe and follow Jesus. Are you living your life with a sense of urgency? That's what God wants all of us to live like, live life like with that sense of urgency. And so he says, come now and worship. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us more skillful worshipers because we've looked at Psalm 95. Make us a worshiping community Help us to see it's about keeping our eyes on Jesus. We see the love of God in the most amazing ways on the cross. We see his grace in the most amazing ways. And it's through Jesus that we really see the ultimate power and beauty of God in a way that transforms us and makes us more like him. In whose name we pray, amen. Um, So this is from Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Blessed, fortunate, prosperous, and favored by God is the one who fears the Lord with awe-inspired reverence and worships him with obedience, who delights greatly in his commandments. Amen. Well, God bless you. And before you leave, please greet the people around you and introduce yourself to them. And thanks again for being here.